This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Channel 7's Eyewitness News with Ernie Anastas and Kaiti Tong. Corey McFerrin with sports, Stormfield with weather, and the Eyewitness News team. Good evening, I'm Bill Butel with Roz Abrams. Ernie Anastas is on assignment and Kaiti Tong is off tonight. One of the more bizarre chapters in recent American criminal history has come to an end. The end for Ted Bundy, a 42-year-old killer who left a trail of at least 20 murders from one end of the country to the other, came in the electric chair of Florida State Prison. An execution ordered after state and federal appeals were exhausted. An execution that set off cheering from those who had called for Bundy's death. Bundy, with his head shaven and his feet bare, was escorted to the chair by two guards. He appeared to be composed and at times even smiled. Just hours before, he told James Dobson, a radio show host, he felt great remorse and his crime should be a warning of the dangers of pornography. I deserve certainly the most extreme punishment society has and I deserve, I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me, that's for sure. Each time, I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount, uh, 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 especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. An eyewitness later described Bundy's last moments of life. He made eye contact. I guess it was the way he carried and acted himself. He made eye contact with people in the front row. You know, he spoke to them. He was cognizant of what was going on about him. Uh, he made reference to his loved ones and to his family when he was saying his last words. The hearse carrying Bundy moved from the prison, past a group of cheering spectators who had waited for Bundy to die, and some said Bundy should have suffered more than he did. Ted Bundy was executed for the murder of a 12-year-old girl in Florida back in 1978. Over the past few days before his death, he confessed to the brutal murders of 20 women in four states. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. If you've listened to this show before, then you may be familiar with the fact that I like to cover cases where I'm traveling. I am currently in Denver and possibly looking for a new place, and uh, I just wanted to look into some cold cases in the area. And we've already covered John Bonet, and we did that over the Christmas holiday, and so we had to look for another case to cover. And I found a case from 1975 that caught my attention. And this was the death of Melanie Suzanne Cooley. She was an 18-year-old senior at Netherland High School. And on April 15, 1975, Melanie Susie Cooley left Netherland High School. She was last seen hitchhiking in Netherland. A road maintenance worker found her body on May 2, 1975, in Coal Creek Canyon. Cooley was last seen wearing blue jeans, a blue jean jacket, with an embroidered eagle on the back and tan-colored boots. She had been hit over the head repeatedly with a large rock. I found the case on the Colorado Cold Case database, and their mission reads, quote, The Colorado Cold Case database features unsolved homicides, missing person, and unidentified persons cases to assist law enforcement agencies in the development of information which can lead to the identification and arrest of any persons who may have committed any crime described on this page. If you have information on any persons or cases found on this page, you are encouraged to contact CBI or the investigating agency. It is the sincerest hope of all those involved in the CBI cold cases unit efforts that the necessary tips and information can be provided to the agencies investigating these quote-unquote cold cases, such that they may resolve 
their own investigations and provide some justice and resolution to these tragedies. And their tagline is similar to mine. Quote, their voices may not be silent. Those who may know the truth are not. The Associated Press reported on a Jefferson County coroner's report that said an 18-year-old Melanie Cooley, whose body was found the previous Friday, had died from massive head injuries from blows with a blunt object. The report said that she had been dead for about two weeks with her body being found near Cole Creek Canyon, again, by a road crew. Detectives said that a large rock was found nearby, and that could have possibly been the weapon used to commit the murder. The young woman had been reported missing on April 15th when she did not return home from school. Now, the coroner's report said she apparently died about three days later. And that is pretty an interesting fact, and that was one of the things that stood out. And then, as I'm reading these reports, it all seems fairly run-of-the-mill as far as homicides go, and I came across the name that everybody knows, Ted Bundy. I shouldn't have been as shocked as I was, but I just didn't put two and two together. I was thinking family issues led her to maybe being abducted by a stranger, which sounds terrible, but when you throw the name Bundy in there, this case takes on a whole different perspective, for better or worse. And I say worse because Melanie may not actually be one of Bundy's victims. And this is a problem because people then assume there is no need to continue to look for Cooley's killer. So what I'm about to dive into is a series of articles that were written around the time Ted Bundy was captured, and then when he was about to be executed. You'll see the problem I just discussed shows up in these articles. This one from October 27, 1975. Headline read, Suspect be questioned in 11 killings and 5 disappearances in 3 states. And this was from the Denver United Press. And again, Colorado authorities believe a series of murders and mysterious disappearances of young women in Colorado during the past year may have some connection with at least eight slayings in Utah and Washington. Authorities say there have been at least three Colorado murders that fit the pattern of the other slayings, and two women have vanished under strange circumstances. Officials said there have been 11 similar murders and five disappearances in the three states, which may have some connections. Authorities said all the victims had long, dark hair, generally brown, and parted in the middle, and several women looked very much alike. They were all in their late teens or early 20s. It's eerie. One person, most of the girls could pass for sisters, you know, one person said. You know, officials said they intended to go to Salt Lake City next month to question, now again, this was in 1979, next month to question Theodore Robert Bundy, 28, about the murders and disappearances. Yeah, Bundy was only 28 when he was first arrested, which is pretty... I don't even know if it was his first arrest, but still, at this point, they're tying him to 16 disappearances. That's pretty freaking crazy. Anyway, Bundy, a former aide to the director of Washington Republican Central Committee, was arrested in Salt Lake City earlier this month on charges of kidnapping and attempted murder. Among the cases Colorado authorities are investigating is the death of Miss Karen Campbell, 23, a nurse from... Dearborn, Michigan, who vanished January 12th from a snowmass ski lodge. Her nude, frozen body was found February 17th along a roadside near the ski area. Other Colorado cases include the disappearance of Julie Cunningham, 26, who vanished on March 15th while hiking near her Vale apartment. Mrs. Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, who disappeared on April 6th while riding bicycle near her Grand Junction home. Then, we have the murder of Melanie Suzanne Cooley from Netherland, whose body was found on May 2nd in Coal Creek Canyon. And then you have Shelley K. Robertson, 24, of Denver, whose body was found on August 23rd inside a mine shaft. And again, an attorney for Bundy issued a statement, and this was again to the paper a week prior, vowing his client was innocent of crimes with which he is charged and also denying any involvement in the other cases. Now, I don't typically use Reddit for much other than to see if there's been some interesting, you know, comments or whatnot. But this one user, and I will say his name was, you know, posted as Mr. Wright, and that's with a W. He actually had a really interesting post, and he did bring up the question about whether or not Ted Bundy 
could have been responsible for Melanie's murder. And he goes on to write, because I want to give you um, an opportunity to read what he did. So I'm going to put his link in the show notes. So go ahead and check that out. And he goes on to say that, you know, Melanie Suzanne Cooley was last seen attempting to hitch a ride near Nederland High School on April 15th, 1975. Her body was found again on May 2nd. Melanie lived with her family in the foothills west of Boulder. Her dad was an airline pilot. Her mom, a University of Colorado student studying English and anthropology. Apparently, the family was politically active. They did go to marches and Vietnam War protests and even were participants in civil rights demonstrations. Mr. Wright goes on to say, Melanie was an artistic girl who enjoyed reading, journaling, writing stories and poems, and playing guitar. She took photographs for the high school yearbook, kept score for the school's basketball team. She loved nature and had an interest in Native American heritage and culture. And while she planned on going to college, she often expressed a desire to see the world, to just get in a Jeep and just drive, quote-unquote. Melanie had apparently, according to this Reddit user, a contentious relationship with her parents, and especially her mom, toward the end of her life. Uh, apparently, she did not like the small-town values and was already experimenting with marijuana. She liked to hitchhike. Um, she would take rides home from strangers. And she wanted to be, like most girls, that age sexually active. Now, again, I told you what she was wearing when she was last seen, but it was a denim jacket with a large eagle on the back. And then she had jeans and knee-high leather boots when she was last seen. Now, again, this is a flashback to my childhood because what we have here is a reference to the French roll, and that is when you pinned your jeans up. I guess it was called pegging in some places. I, that sounded terrible. But anyway, you know what I mean. And <clears throat> so that was a look, and I'm not sure that that means anything, but I just went on a little tangent there because don't really see it referenced very often. But anyway... The following Thursday, a man found Melanie's wallet near his property and brought it into school. A few days later, her parents and four deputies searched the area where the wallet was found, which had formerly been the site of a hippie commune and had sheds and outbuildings, piles of old lumber, barrels of trash, rusted auto bodies strewn about it. Now, Melanie's mom found her daughter's birth control pills, and this was clear because it had some customization to it that said Susie. Mr. Wright goes on to say that it was too, you know, um, when her body was found, it was frozen, fully clothed. And then this is a quote from the sheriff, Brad Leach, at the time. Quote, she had been bludgeoned, perhaps with a stone. Her hands were tied in front with a yellow nylon cord, many feet of it, wrapped around and around. She died from a blow to the head and strangulation. Her face had been beaten with rock repeatedly and one contact lens was missing. The body was in pretty bad shape, what with freezing and thawing and the wild things, two weeks lying there, unquote. There was also supposedly a pillowcase that was twisted around her neck, and that was according to author Anne Rule. And Melanie was identified by way of a report card that was found in her pocket, dental records, and a birthmark on her thigh. Now her parents later asked to identify her clothing, and she is believed to have been dead for 10, to two week, 10 days to two weeks before she was found. Now, this is the interesting part where Mr. Wright goes on to name some of the circumstantial factors linking Bundy to the case, and one is Melanie's murder took place within Ted's Colorado period. And after committing several murders in Utah in October and November of 1974, Bundy moved east in January to claim his first victim in the Centennial State. Number two, according to Mr. Wright, was Melanie's age and appearance. They are in line with his victim type. And again, that was short to long, dark hair, and looked similar to the other victims. Uh, like confirmed, number three was like confirmed, fi confirmed victims. Debbie Kent, Lynette Culver, and Kim Leach. Melanie may have been abducted shortly after leaving school. I don't know how circumstantial that. I mean, that's just that's just whatever. Like canonical victims, Melissa Smith and Laura Amy, 
Melanie was a small town girl apparently abducted from or near the community in which she lived. Again, uh, very circumstantial. Uh, also, like Smith and Amy, her remains were found in an open area and largely intact. Now, number six was we did know that Melanie was known to hitchhike and was reportedly seen with her thumb out near the highway on that day. Of course, as we all know, Ted Bundy was prone to pitching up, picking up hitchhikers, a lot like many serial killers are. And number eight or number seven is that this is the more interesting one. Gas receipts placed Ted in Golden, Colorado, where I am actually today recording this episode, less than an hour from Netherland earlier that month, proving he was at least somewhat familiar with the area. Now, Bundy lived in Salt Lake City, so this is circumstantially speaking, according to Mr. Wright. Number eight, Ted is also suspected of murdering another young woman, Shelley Robertson, in Golden. Great. I just can't get away from Bundy. The dorm he lived in where I went to University of Utah was right next to mine, as you guys may recall from previous episodes. But anyway, as we continue, Melanie, number nine, Melanie appeared to have died from a combination of blunt force trauma. This was a Ted M.O. I mean, it's a... If it's a crime of opportunity and there's a rock nearby, then I won't put too much faith into that statement there, but whatever. Anyway, again, great stuff, though. These aren't things that I disagree with. It's just some of them may be a little bit harder to believe than others. Number 10, her hands were bound. Now, while none of the other victims were found this way, Mr. Wright says... We do know that he sometimes bound the victim's hands before killing them. Now, again, he says, albeit with handcuffs. So, Melanie's hands, number 11, were bound with yellow nylon cord. Ted confessed to using a nylon cord to strangle at least one of his victims. Again, I won't put too much emphasis on that because of the fact that, like a rock to kill a victim, a nylon cord, especially back in the 70s, was probably not the hardest thing to come by. So... You know, he goes on to say that he does, you know, Melanie's mother does not think that Ted Bundy was his, her daughter's killer. And, you know, he never did actually confess to Melanie's murder. But it is very interesting to see how these cases can get caught up in a serial killer's case. And now you may be able to recognize what I'm saying when I say it could be worse off because people think well sure now it lines up that yeah Bundy probably did do it but you know as we know with Bundy let's just take things with a grain of salt you know he confessed to a lot of different things at the end of his murder you know end of his life right before he was executed and it's tough to say but again that didn't matter and again in 1979 it was reported that Oh, no, this was actually, see, this was crazy because in 1989, I think is when he decided to talk. And so what happened was, according to the Associated Press, Ted Bundy changed, Ted Bundy changed his mind today about talking to journalists and media interviews have been scheduled for the day before his scheduled execution, the prison spokesman said. An hour-long group interview will be held Monday afternoon, followed by a one-hour interview with a single newspaper or broadcast station that Bundy has yet to pick, according to Bob McMaster, a spokesman for the Florida Department of Corrections. And when Florida prosecutors won capital murder convictions against the serial killer, it ended efforts by Colorado officials to tie him to five mysterious murders and disappearances in 1975. Authorities have said Bundy is considered a suspect in three dozen killings across the United States, all the victims strangled or bludgeoned to death. A trail of murders and disappearances followed Theodore Bundy when he was in Colorado during 1975, authorities said. Bundy's gasoline credit card records showed he bought gasoline in or near Aspen on January 12, 1975. That's the same day that Karen Campbell, 24, a nurse from Dearborn, disappeared from Wildwood Lodge, which was a ski resort between Aspen and Snowmass. Her body, as I've mentioned before, was found near the mountain about a month later. The same credit card was used in Bundy's name 
again in Dillon on March 15, 1975. That same day, Julie Cunningham, a ski shop employee, walked out of her apartment in Vail, about 20 miles away, and was never seen again. The card was used again in Grand Junction on April 6, 1975. That same day, Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, disappeared while riding a yellow bicycle near her Grand Junction home. Her bicycle and shoes were found a half mile away the next day. Colorado authorities also considered Bundy a suspect in the deaths of two other young women. Again, this is in 1989, so think about the things that aren't being seen. Um, so Melanie, they say, you know, Melanie Suzanne Cooley was last seen alive near Boulder on April 15, 1975. Her body was found in a nearby canyon two weeks later. Again, the fact that we are putting this name in the story in 1989 from the Associated Press, this is a national organization, and, you know, it's something that is not taken lightly. If it comes from the AP, then everybody takes it for what it is. And I wonder if this is not one of those cases where she gets lost in the sauce of a serial killer. And I hate to use that phrase because it's like, you know, how can people forget about it? But it's true. If you, if people keep continuing to talk about Bundy's possibility, connect, you know, to be being connected to this case, it's really hard to say that, you know, Melanie was killed by somebody else. You know, people like to get on that kind of stuff. It's really easy to do. I mean, we've seen, heck, we've seen pop culture take, you know, Ted Bundy, you know, I've said that a million times at this point. But you see Bundy on Netflix. You see the confession tapes. You see the Zac Efron movie. It's just like Bundy is just one of those serial killers that just doesn't seem to go away. And whenever there's an, a body found in some you know, remote area, it is sometimes thought, well, maybe we should connect it and see if it's connected to Mr. Bundy. So again, you know, this is like, it's just crazy because everybody talks, you know, when you go and you research this stuff, everybody talks just about the possibility that Bundy killed this poor girl when there is absolutely zero evidence that this is the case. And some parts of his MO don't fit. So mm, let's take it with a grain of salt. But just to give you a little bit of background about Bundy, he was arrested in Utah in August 1975, and he was con convicted in the attempted kidnapping of an 18-year-old woman from Murray, Utah, at a shopping center. In 1976, he was extradited to Colorado to face charges in Campbell's murder. Now, on June 7, 1977, unshackled and wandering around the courtroom in P Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen, Bundy suddenly leaped from an open window and disappeared. So the interesting story about that, <clears throat> which you find out later, and you know, as time goes on, Bundy had weaseled his way into getting to use the upstairs part of the courthouse. And when he was in the upstairs part of the courthouse, he didn't have to be shackled because he was trying to, you know, work on his case. So he talked his way into that. And as the day was going on, somebody saw a body fly by the window and said, I think somebody just jumped from the second floor. And lo and behold, Ted Bundy had escaped. Now, he was recaptured about a week later in Aspen, and then he was moved to a more secure jail in Glenwood Springs. On New Year's Eve 1977, Bundy pulled a foot-square light fixture from the ceiling and wriggled through the opening into the attic. Now, it's just crazy, man. I mean, he's he's like, uh, not only is he a con man, a serial killer, a sociopath, but he's also like an escape artist. He's just a wild combination. He was next arrested on February 15, 1978, in Pensacola, Florida, where authorities charged him with the slayings of two Florida State University students and the Diane Leach murder. Now... There was a Bundy tape. In the hour before his execution, the convicted serial killer Ted Bundy made a tape 
disclosing details on the location of the body of Denise Oliverson of Grand Junction and the body of one of his Utah victims. And Mike Fisher, who was an investigator at the 9th Judicial District Attorney's Office, said Thursday that in the veil in Vail, that the Attorney General's office had interfered with their interviews of Bundy by holding out hope that the Attorney General would support a stay of execution for Bundy. Quote, I was professionally embarrassed, Fisher said. The Attorney General communicated separately with Bundy, and Woodward Woodard had, hadn't slammed the door on a possible stay of execution for Bundy. At least that's what Bundy read into their communications. Now, Fisher and Linval were at the Florida State Prison to interview Bundy Saturday at and Sunday about his role in the 1975 deaths or disappearances of three women, Denise Oliverson and Karen Campbell and Julie Cunningham. Investigator Bob Sexton of the state attorney general's office was at the Florida state prison on Monday to interview Bundy, who was also suspected in the deaths of Melanie Suzanne Cooley from Netherland and Shelley K. Robertson of Denver. So again, just like I mentioned in the beginning, you have a case where this is international news. Ted Bundy, the horrific serial killer, 36 victims across the country, possibly more. And you have all these different state generals, attorney generals, going to him and asking him, you know, did you commit this murder? Did you commit that murder? And again, he never admits to killing Melanie, even though he goes on to admit that he killed other people, that, you know, he he shocked a lot of people. I mean, that's one of the things that they say. And, you know, the Associated Press called Bundy a deceptive manipulator. And they said, Theodore Robert Ted Bundy, scheduled to die Tuesday in Florida's electric chair, has been depicted as a deceptive genius and manipulator and even, quote, like the plague. Bundy, 42, is under the death warrant for the February 1978 murder of Kimberly Diane Leach, a 12-year-old Lake City schoolgirl. So if you want to talk about M.O.s, this is completely off his M.O. You know, 12? I mean, that's pretty young. He typically goes for teenagers to early, you know, early 20s. So that one's pretty wild, in my opinion. But the fact that he did it, I mean... He got what he deserved. So at that time, he was going to die at 7 a.m. in a Florida state prison. And again, he was also under the death sentence for the slaying of the two women at the Chi Omega sorority house in Tallahassee. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Well, we made it through 2021, and as you can see, 2022 really isn't much better. But if there is something holding you back, there is now an easy way to get help, and that's BetterHelp.com. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace with BetterHelp Online Counseling. You can connect with an online professional counselor in a private and safe environment. And you know what? It's really convenient because it has to be in this fluid world. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions, and then you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp is really there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. My favorite thing is, for whatever reason, you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone, so really you're never out of touch. So if you're suffering from anxiety or depression, like I sometimes do, or other issues such as anger, stress, LGBT issues, self-esteem, whatever it may be, they do have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. Again, it's really a great option. It's affordable. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com WHO. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and you'll get matched with a counselor you'll love. 
Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. All right, we are back. And a little bit about that story is Ted had just reached the point where he was so freaked out about, well, he wasn't freaked out. He was just so engrossed in his manic state of murdering things and killing people that he just went on like a murder spree after he was rejected at a club. And I mean, there may be a little, uh, that might be a little artistic interpretation by some people. And that's just the way it's been told. But, you know, Bundy wasn't the young, good looking dude. He was starting to lose his hair. Um, he wasn't picking up tons of chicks at that point, And he super certainly didn't have the charisma. I mean, I think that's kind of hard when you're literally on the run for your life because you've already been, well, at least arrested for murdering and charged with murdering people and kidnapping them. But yeah, so Bundy goes into the Kyle Omega house in Florida State and he takes a log, like a fire piece of firewood, and beats these two women to die. He rapes them. It's just, it, it's horrific. And then he comes back to the place that he's staying. You know, he gets out of the house somehow, get, gets back to where he is and he's still just in a rage and witnesses said that you know Bundy this person that we had known or thought we knew was just completely out of it and completely out of control and it was definitely not something that they were expecting so Bundy's attorney James Coleman of Washington DC had been asked why the public was fascinated with his client quote he's intelligent attractive He's your next-door neighbor. He's one of us, Coleman said. But Assistant State Attorney Jack Puttinger has said, quote, Bundy was like the plague. Everywhere he goes, death follows. State Attorney Jer Jerry Blair, who prosecuted Bundy for the leech killing, said he sees two reasons for the public fascination and revulsion of Bundy. Number one, Ted Bundy is a serial mass murderer. The mere fact that he is a mass murderer, a serial murderer, gives rise to a certain degree of notoriety. Blair said, quote, the other reason is the persona of Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy does not fit our stereotypical concept of what a criminal ought to be and what a mass murderer in particular ought to be. So it, it's, again, it's one of those things. They're already talking about the fascination of Ted Bundy because we can't forget about the things that happened in trial. And that was the fact that he had all these women coming and watching him. And there was like a I don't know like what you would call it. It was like a, a harem of women that supported this sociopath. I mean, he even got married in the middle of... <laughs> I know this was a stunt that he, the judge didn't like, but, you know, he he freaking um, proposes during one of his uh, cross-examinations of the witness, and she accepts, so whatever. It's crazy, crazy stuff. And, you know, and then the judge, you know, he goes on to say, oh, you know, I'm so, I would have liked to work with you one day, but unfortunately you're, you know, not fit for society because at one point, you know, Bundy, of course, is representing himself and it is um, something that typically doesn't happen. And uh, again, just to get back to another article from the AP right before his death. This is a quote from the AP. Ted Bundy, a charming law school dropout who ended years of denials that he was a killer with emotional confessions to the slayings of 20 women in four states, was electrocuted Tuesday for killing a 12-year-old girl. Bundy's last words before a black-hooded executioner pulled a switch at 7.06 a.m., sending 2,000 volts through his body, were his lawyer and a minister. Quote, Give my love to my family, and my friends. More than 100 proponents of the death penalty were waiting in a field across from the Florida State Prison, cheered, lit sparklers, and set off firecrackers at the signal that the 42-year-old Theodore Robert Bundy had been put to death for the crime committed. And some people, <laughs> I mean, this is, it was like a tailgate, basically. I mean, you've seen the documentaries, and you know that people were yelling, burn, Bundy, burn! You know, and there was some people that were, you know, singing on, quote, on top of old Sparky, a reference to the nickname for Florida's oaken three-legged electric chair. 
Now, there were only about two dozen people that were there who opposed the death penalty. So, if that gives you any idea about how reviled uh, this guy was, he couldn't even get the death penalty proponents or opponents out there. And uh, it's pretty wild. But uh, the article goes on to say that Bundy had been quick-witted, known for his cockiness and arrogance, a handsome, blue-eyed charmer. The serial killer was the subject of five books and a television miniseries, The Deliberate Stranger. Again, he's getting glamorized in 19, throughout the 1980s. But he recently claimed to, quote, feel God's presence and was reported to be, at the end, remorseful about his bloody trail of kidnappings, sadistic, sexual mutilations, mutilations and slayings in his home state of Washington, Utah, Colorado, Idaho, and Florida. In an interview with a religious broadcaster and psychologist, James Dobson, Bundy said his home life had been normal, but early experiences with pornography had crystallized violent tendencies within him. Later, alcohol reduced his inhibitions and lied, and, you know, he acted on those tendencies. Quote, the most damaging kinds of pornography... And again, here I'm talking from personal experience, hard, real personal experience, are those that involve violence and sexual violence, Bundy said. He then issued a warning. Quote, there is loose in your, their towns, their communities, people like me today, whose dangerous impulses are being fueled day in and day out by violence in the media in various forms, particularly sexual violence, Bundy said. Now, in the last few days of his life, Bundy slowly and deliberately described his crimes in detail, according to Russ Renau, who was chief investigator for the Idaho Attorney General. And Renau said Bundy told how he made an overnight trip from Salt Lake City to Pocatello, Idaho, and he said he was there for a specific purpose, and that was to commit a murder. But when he asked why he killed, Bundy answered, quote, only obliquely, when he asked, when we asked him why he made that trip to P- Pocatello, he said it was because of the madness, quote unquote. Now that is kind of what I was talking about before when he went into the Chi Omega house, and then what his neighbors saw when he came home, it was just like the state of madness. He was just, he was, he was insane. I mean, it's Ted Bundy. I mean, it's he's a wild and crazy murderer. So. You know, again, his execution for the slain of the 12-year-old was the 20th man put to death in Florida and the 106th in the United States since the Supreme Court allowed states to reinstate the death penalty in 1976. Now, Kimberly, you probably are wondering, was kidnapped from the grounds of her junior high school on February 9th, 1978, just three weeks after the killings of the two women at the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State. Now, the child's body was found three months later in an abandoned pigsty. Bundy was also under a death sentence for the two Chi Omega killings, which I mentioned before. Now, again, until near the end, he had insisted he was innocent, although he had been suspected as many of three dozen killings and disappearances. And then late last week, this is 1989, he began talking to investigators from the different states that had questions. And... Basically, one of Bundy's final acts was to permit Dobson, a California psychologist and host of a syndicated radio show, to videotape an interview to be broadcast later. Dobson described Bundy as, quote, feeling great remorse. He quoted Bundy saying his crimes, quote, should serve as a warning to the dangers of pornography. Again, they're passing the buck here, and they're trying to say, oh, you know, he he was into porn, and that's, come on. Bundy was a straight-up, sociopath and there's nobody I think that can argue that and so you know Bundy appeared frightened as he was escorted into the death chamber but he moved easily into the chair he nodded to his attorney James Coleman and Gainesville minister Fred Lawrence who had counseled him er earlier Jim and Fred I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends he said in a strong voice that trailed off at the end He was calm but visibly shaken, said State Rep. Randy Mackey of Lake City, who was an official witness. Bundy stared straight ahead, and his jaw tightened when workers adjusted a chin strap and fitted a hood over his shaven head. When the switch was thrown by the anonymous executioner who was paid $150 for the job, Bundy's body surged back against the chair, his fists clenched. He was pronounced dead at 7.16 a.m. 
Now, Gene Williams, owner of the Williams Thomas Funeral Home, said he accepted custody of the body, but would not give any details on arrangements, including whether there would be burial or cremation. But he said no funeral was planned. The execution came a week to the day after the U.S. Supreme Court denied an appeal in the Leach case. The days were following were filled with a round of appeals by Bundy's lawyers. The U.S. Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four late Monday against another stay. John Tanner, a prosecutor who arranged for Bundy's confessions with investigators from four western states, said Bundy had not finished telling the names and locations of bodies. He just ran out of time. The governor had insisted that Bundy would not be allowed to use a protracted litany of confessions to delay his execution a fourth time. So, again, just like the Melanie Cooley case, you get caught up talking about Ted Bundy. And it's not fair to talk about Ted Bundy without talking about the victims. So, again, like I mentioned before, he was suspected of 36 deaths. So I'm just going to run you down the list of women, and it's kind of crazy. So he was convicted of murdering Margaret Bowman, Janet Levy, in uh, January 15, 1978, and that was the Chi Omega murder. And then he was also convicted of the 12-year-old Kimberly Leach death in February 1978, and again... In Idaho, Bundy confessed to killing two people in Idaho, and authorities had never previously linked him to any killings in the state. But they said Tuesday, 1989, that they were reasonably certain that Bundy abducted Lynette Culver, 12, from her junior high school on May 6, 1975, and killed her. The body has never been found. So I guess if we knew about that case before and it was officially tied to him, then I guess I wouldn't have been so surprised to see the 12-year-old murder of Kimberly Leach. I think that's kind of wild. Um, In Colorado, Bundy confessed to the slaying of Karen Campbell, and that was the nurse from Dearborn. And again, uh, Bundy had been charged in the slaying. And then Julie Cunningham, a 26-year-old employee at Vail, he is suspected in the slayings. Okay, so he can he confessed to the murder of Karen Campbell, and then confessed to the murder of Julie Cunningham. Then he's also been suspected of Denise Lynn Oliverson, and I believe that's one he did eventually confess to. And then here we have another reference to our original subject, and that is Melanie Suzanne Cooley. And again, let's remember she is not necessarily a Bundy victim. She could just be lost in this whole world of dramatic retellings of the Bundy story and the fact that she just so happened to disappear in Colorado when Bundy may have been in the state. It's a big state, but, I mean, I get the connection, but it's still kind of a shock. And then, you know, I believe he did also... Maybe he didn't, I don't think, he definitely didn't confess to the Melanie Cooley case. So that's the thing that's annoying, is that they always throw her name in here, even though he had an opportunity to confess. Now, if the attorney general is correct that he just ran out of time, well, that's just crap on the governor's part for not allowing him to give more information, because if that was the case, then maybe these cases wouldn't be suspected cases. Again, Oregon. Bundy is suspected in the deaths of Rita Lorraine Jolly, who was 17, and she vanished from West Lynn in June of 1973. Again, her body was never found. And then there was Vicki Lynn Holler, 24, who disappeared from Eugene in August 1973. Like the one before her, her body was never found as well. Now in Utah, Bundy confessed to five killings. Melissa Smith, 17, of Midvale. And then there was Lauren Anne Amy, 17, of Salem. And you had Nancy Baird, 23, on July 4th, 1975. Nancy Wilcox, 16, a cheerleader, was last seen on October 3rd, 1974. And that was in a yellow Volkswagen that was driven by Bundy. The Salt Lake Tribune quoted unidentified sources as saying, authorities were adding the names of Sandra Weaver, a Wisconsin native who had lived in Thule, until her death in 1974, and Brigham Young University student Sue Curtis, who disappeared in 1975. 
Salt Lake police also asked authorities to question Bundy about Debbie Smith, 17, whose body was found on April 1, 1976, near the SLC airport. Now, Washington was where he had his um, most killings. First was Roberta Kathleen Parks, 20, from 1974, and that was her body was found east of Seattle. Then you had Linda Ann Healy, 21, University of Washington, and she was last seen February 1st, 1974. Donna Gail Manson, 19, who left her dorm room at Evergreen State College near Olympia about a month later to attend a campus jazz concert and never returned. Suzanne Rancourt, 18, of Anchorage, Alaska, a student at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, left a meeting of prospective dorm counselors April 17, 1974, and disappeared. Brenda Ball, 22, was last seen leaving a Seattle tavern on June 1, 1974, looking for a ride. Georgianne Hawkins, 18, a University of Washington student who vanished on June 11, 1974, as she walked down a brightly lit alley to her sorority house. Janice Ott, 23, and Denise Nasland, 19, who disappeared July 14, 1974, from Lake Sammamish State Park, east of Seattle. Now, again, that day at Lake Sammamish was, if you know the story of Bundy, he killed two people that day, tried to lure multiple people, but did eventually, I mean, he killed two people. He returned to the same scene and killed another person on the same day. Talk about a guy not being able to control his obviously sick impulses. So there was a young hitchhiker near Olympia in 1973, but Robert Keppel, a Washington State Attorney General investigator, said Bundy did not provide her name. Two other women who Bundy uh, did not identify or give times of death that there were bodies were left, Keppel said. Uh, Thurston County officials, authorities in Olympia, Washington, said M- Bundy might have been referring to two 14-year-olds last seen alive hitchhiking. One was Catherine, Catherine Mary Devine, who vanished on November 25, 1973, after being seen in Seattle and whose body was found 11 days later at a campground near Olympia. The other was Brenda Joy Baker, a runaway from Maple Valley, south of Seattle, last seen on May 27, 1974. Now, I mean, this is like the numbers just keep going up. Other cases that he might be connected to, Carol Valenzuela, 20, disappeared in August 1974 from Vancouver. Um, Then you have the death of Anne-Marie Burr, who was an eight-year-old, and that was in Bundy's hometown in Tacoma, Washington. She disappeared when Bundy was 14. Now, Bundy did deny killing the girl. In May 1966, two 20-year-old airline flight attendants, Lonnie Trumbull and Lisa Wick, were attacked and beaten in their Seattle apartment. Miss Trumbull died while Miss Wick suffered skull fractures but lived. Bundy lived nearby and worked at the supermarket where the women shopped, but Bundy also denied this attack. Now, Whitman County authorities say they also consider Bundy a suspect in the 1971 death of Joyce LePage, 21, of Pasco, a student at Washington State University in Pullman. Bundy denied he killed her, but Keppel urged authorities to keep him on the suspect list. So, there you have it. It's one of those things where you really just don't understand how bad it can be Um, when you have a case where a serial killer is possibly involved, I think when you do that, it is, um, it is very hard to see what the end result really will be. I mean, it's definitely one of those cases where I I hate to say it, but it gets, lost amongst all the other files because of the fact that you have Ted Bundy now and it's like they can just easily it's it's kind of like the Atlanta child killer the Wayne uh, Williams case you know where he the profilers told the police before they arrested him you know listen don't um don't connect him to every single uh crime. I mean, and the next you know, the next thing you know, he's like, oh, all these other cases are closed. That's a bunch of BS because there's just some numbers that don't add up in that particular case where he would have had, had been killing like every day. So I don't know. Let's just, um, let's just say, I don't know. 
Ted Bundy. Could he have killed Melanie Cooley? Sure. There's definitely a possibility. Some of the things fit. Bundy was crazy. Unfortunately, Melanie is the one that gets lost in this story because of everything that is about, you know, everything with Ted Bundy. There is just so much craziness that goes on there that everybody just focuses on him. And if he is the one that was involved with Melanie's murder, I just don't, unfortunately, we're never going to find out. So the fact that her mom doesn't believe that Bundy did it, I will say a mother's intuition is tough to beat. So let's just go with that. So again, this is sort of a hybrid episode of the disappearance and murder of Melanie Susie or Suzanne Cooley, as well as a little brief synopsis of everyone's what they call charming serial killer. But in all reality, he was a sadist and a sociopath. So that's the episode for this week. So if you have any information about the Melanie Suzanne Cooley case, you can contact the cold case investigator at 303-271-5195 or at coldcase at jeffco.us. Thank you to betterhelp.com for sponsoring this week's episode. And you guys, just so you know, this is going to be the second time that I will be at CrimeCon now that we've gotten through some of the pandemic. We're still expecting Las Vegas CrimeCon 2022 to take place April 29th through May 1st. You can use my promo code to save on your ticket, and that is Amy2022. If you enjoy this podcast or any other of my other shows, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. And again, that's slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. There will also be a link in the show notes. Every contribution does help keep these slow burn podcasts running. And if you would like to support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows, that would be great because those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. As you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you so much again for listening this week. Until next time, everybody stay healthy and be safe. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.